Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is the with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't dictate it, as almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is December 1st, 2009. It is a Tuesday. We'll pause there because somehow in my absent-mindedness I wrote Monday on show notes. I guess I'm confused. I guess I'm confused because today we're going to do something we did yesterday and we usually do on Mondays. A listener question show. Here's what happened, man. I went home yesterday and I, I opened up the questions folder in Outlook after nine questions yesterday. I went, holy crap, do I have a backlog of listener questions. And I'm like, if I let this backlog go much more without maybe doubling up a week or two here and there. Um, a lot of these questions that are great questions are never going to get answered and I need to get in there. And some of them might be topical or things like that, you know, uh, time sensitive. So I should get them answered and live up to my pledge to try to answer every question that's answerable in a show of this nature, which means I'm doing eight to nine questions. If it's a, an entire topic in of itself, uh, maybe it gets stationed out in the future for a show instead of an answer to a question. But if it's a question I can answer in, in three to five minutes, I try to commit to answering it uh, for you in a show like this. So, with that, that's what we'll be doing today. Before that, though, let's do, do some housekeeping. Uh, today's episode 327. I don't know if I said that or not, because uh, I'm dealing with ass clowns on the highway as usual. Uh, and I know I didn't say this is a mobile podcast, so if it's your first one and you're wondering what the hell the background noise is and what I'm talking about with fighting ass clowns, I'm on I-20 doing uh, 67 miles an hour right now in my diesel Jetta TDI. Um, but we do need to take care of our sponsors. And I want you to remember whenever I talk about our sponsors on this show, they are not just people that showed up with a check in hand. Um, I have to approve them. Then my moderators on the forum have to approve them. Uh, they are vetted, and they are personal endorsements. If I would not buy from them personally, I will not put them on the show. Uh, nothing could be more so than with uh, BackyardFoodProduction.com. I want you to check these guys out. They, uh, they came on board about two weeks ago. Their banner's at the top of the stack at the survivalpodcast.com, so they're easy to find. They, they've come up to the top of the rotation this week. Uh, this is a 110-minute DVD that you'll have to watch about six times to, to, to understand everything that's in there for you to learn. Um, it's a family that's really done these things with permaculture, agriculture, and self-sufficiency um, down in, in, the, in the center of the state of Texas, which is a harsh environment to grow in. Uh, the techniques they're using there should work anywhere. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. I was blown away by it, and I've advised the owner, Marjorie, to actually raise the price of the product. I think it's underpriced at, at $25. Uh, I think it should be at least a $30 product, so I'd buy it before she takes my advice. She's uh, been giving her some free consulting on her site, and she's been taking my advice, so I expect her to take that advice, too. And if I were you, I'd act now. Um, next sponsor of the day, Safe Castle Royal. Everything the prepper could possibly need. Really cool stuff. I mean, just t- take a look at their site today, folks. While you're, you're bored at work, I know Christmas is coming up, you got preppers in your life that you want to buy something for, check these guys out. They're cool. They have a great discount membership. It's a lifetime membership for 30 bucks, 29 bucks. I'll tell you how to get that for free in a second. Next, get involved with our form. Leave it at that today, but get involved with our form. Um, real quick, I want to remind people we do have a gear shop now, uh, which is basically things like T-shirts, hats, patches, stickers, and more cool stuff. Come and check out our gear shop. Um, I think a T-shirt uh, would be a good Christmas gift, and the shirts are freaking awesome, guys. Uh, Sister Wolf at TW did a great job with the design on the shirts. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll also get that Safe Castle Royal discount membership for 29 bucks free and about $150 worth of other things free and a whole bunch of discounts uh, for other things for free and a whole bunch of ebooks for free. It's pretty awesome, so check it out. And with that, we'll let that go. Now, before I start taking questions, I want to remind you guys, we are sponsoring um, the, the Forward op- Operating Battalion uh, at Spurwin Gar this year in Afghanistan. Uh, it is a group of military people that we're going to sponsor for Christmas time. And 
and um, because of the sensitive nature of that location, uh, I've been asked not to publish the address. Uh, but what we're doing is we're just packing up boxes of stuff, beef jerky, you know, goodies, crackers, playing cards, you name it, anything you think a soldier on deployment might like to receive. Pack up care packages, put them in a box, put an address on them, and send them off. We've got a warrant officer over there who's agreed to be the receiving point for us and make sure the stuff is distributed, kind of starting with the privates on up. And uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, so if you want to participate, send an email to Jack at the Survival podcast.com uh, ask me for the address I'll send it to you with some additional information on uh, making this thing a success this year and uh, about 40 people are already doing it and um, I'm freaking humbled I really am I, I absolutely am humbled to be part of something like this and I ask you you know you're going to spend this Christmas uh, pretty comfortable no matter what you've been through you're going to spend it pretty dang uncomfortable and uh, these guys aren't. And uh, at this time of year, uh, what you send them may not show up until January, and that's okay. Let me tell you something. As a deployed soldier, uh, I know January is one of the more lonely times of the year because Christmas comes and everybody, you know, does something at Christmas time, and then there's kind of like after a high point, there's a depression point, and no one sends anything to soldiers in January and February. Uh, it's the lowest time of the year. So the fact that your stuff might arrive a little bit late, I don't care if you're not listening to this podcast till December 24th, pack it up, send it out. You can ask me for this address as long as you want to into 2010. I promise you I'll be giving you this address. And with that, um, I know I went long today, but you know that's an important thing to me. It means a lot, and I want to make sure that we're getting maximum participation this year. So let's go into some questions. i got some cool ones. Uh, Lauren, again, I'm doing first names now with questions to try to make this more personal. Uh, and form handles, if that's how they're sent in. But Lauren has a question about private wells and septic systems uh, that's kind of unique. She wants to know, if you have the option for a private well and a septic system, is that better than being grid-tied? Assuming that your groundwater is of good quality and that you don't have some sort of um, infection uh, or chemical contamination of your groundwater, absolutely on the well. I would rather drink well water any day. Uh, I have a well in Arkansas, the place that we had in Pennsylvania had a well. It's not financially... feasible for me to put a well in, in, in Arlington, especially with my short-term timeline. So water from the city is cheap enough, uh, but we do use fil- filters in the home. Um, I don't like fluoride in our water supply, and, and I'm not like a hypochondriac about it. I'm fine with fluoride in our toothpaste, folks. When you when you brush your teeth with fluoride, you're, you're applying fluoride to your, to your teeth, and you're rinsing your mouth, and I hope you spit it out. I hope you don't swallow your toothpaste. That's kind of nasty. Um, but that's one way to use fluoride. But when you're actually ingesting it into your body continuously with your water supply, I think it's bad for us. And if you want to know why, um, take a look at a box of rat poison. Just go to the Home Depot or Lowe's or Tractor Supply or wherever they sell rat poison. Read the ingredients. Most rat poisons you'll find one ingredient, sodium fluoride. It's a toxin. And it does have a healthful effect on teeth, and we can say that and all. And I don't like chlorine in the water, and that's the only way to, to mass distribute water. So um, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory or anything like that. I'm just saying that there's chemicals in our city water that I prefer not to drink. So if I had a choice, definitely with a well. I think a well is definitely more dependable in a major shit hit the fan because as long as you can keep enough power there to run the well, including manual power like a crank, you have a supply of water that's uh, as good as your water table. So water, definitely. Sewer, um, absolutely I would choose septic over city sewer uh, because there's really low maintenance to a septic system if you take good care of it. Uh, Very infrequently that you really have to do anything with it. And you can control the load on the septic system uh, with a lot of different things and and really make it completely maintenance-free. 
if we have major shit at the fan, especially things that are like flooding and hurricanes, sewer systems tend to back up, and if you're tied into the city sewer, you can end up with all the sewage coming up your drains, not likely with a septic system. So in both instances, I would prefer to have my own control. The downside, uh, when I went to Arkansas last year, around this time, it was January, and um, so I guess it was this year, but uh, right after Christmas last year, we went to Arkansas, we got up there, turned the water on, drip, 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 drop, uh, well, had failed. Not sure why. Did a little troubleshooting, figured out it was a particular part. Um, Not a hard part to replace, not expensive to replace. It was like a $120 part Uh, problem. uh, Everybody was closed and was closed for three days. So it took three days to be able to get the part because pretty much everybody shut down there between Christmas and New Year's. So we went out without water for three days, except we had rain catch, and then there was water in the town, and we had water stored there, but we didn't have running water. And uh, so if we would have had city water, which isn't even an option where I live, um, that wouldn't have been a problem. So at times, one can be less reliable than the other, but you control the response when you own your own. Now, Lauren had an interesting uh, option for me, and that was, what do you think about putting in your own well and septic, but... If you live in a place where you can have city sewer and city water, maintaining the ability to connect whenever you want. In other words, having both. Um, I guess it would be the best situation of all. I'd be more inclined to take that approach with a well and the water grid. If I'm going to put in a septic system, I'm pretty much going to rely upon it. I'm going to put in the best system that I can afford. I'm going to take good care of it. I'm going to sever my ties to the sewer grid altogether. Putting in a well and still having access to um, city water is a really good idea. I I like that as long as it's financially feasible and it makes sense where you are. Um, It does a lot for you. It gives you a good source of water for irrigation. If they go into water rationing with city water or jack the rates up uh, or they have a grid failure. So I like the water hybridization. I probably just wouldn't mess with it for sewage. I'm going to do one or the other there, but that's a personal choice. I wouldn't fault you for doing it. Uh, Let's take another question. Okay, somebody sent me a link. Uh, Person's name was Mike, and I don't want to... I'm going to say some negative things here that are not about Mike. They're about the guy he asked about. So if Mike, if you're listening, don't be offended. You asked, and anybody listening to this, none of this has anything to do with Mike. Mike didn't give me his opinion of this guy one way or another. He asked for mine. He might think the guy's an asshat, too. I don't know. I emailed him today and said it'll be on today's show. I hope you don't like this guy. So he sent me this link to YouTube. It's a cutout of a podcast where a guy named Bob Chapman appeared. And uh, Bob Chapman, on this podcast, said that the dollar is absolutely doomed by January of 2010. That there are, let me see, 2,035 banks in imminent uh, point of failure. They will fail early in 2010. Um, that, That... failure of those 2,000 banks will bring on a total failure rate of about 2,500 banks, because when certain banks fail, it causes other banks to fail. His advice in this was to get out of every single thing you have uh, denominated in dollars, including if you have a whole life policy with a cash value, cash it out, put it in gold or silver. And it always to go in gold and silver coins. Uh, really? Okay. Um, and, I mean, he said everything. A CD, pay the penalty. Retirement account, pay the penalty. Pull your money. Every freaking dollar. Get out of it before January. Do it now. Panic, panic, freak out. The world is going to end in January. And Mr. Chapman has inside sources inside the Treasury, who he's spoken to on the phone, who have told him these things as insider information, and you better listen to him, and you better do this now. What do I think of that? I think he's an asshat. In fact, I think he's worse than an asshat. I think he's an asshat and an ass clown at the same time. You can look up both words on Google if you're confused by what that would mean. Um, this guy's a complete disaster. Now, here's, here's how I say this. I'm not saying this baselessly. I'm not saying that just because I doubt his source or just because I think he's wrong or just because I have a different opinion. I'm saying this because whenever you show me somebody that puts out forward-looking statements and says, hey, this is coming, and I have information that tells me this is coming and you better act on it, my first instinct is, who is this guy? And has he said shit like this before, and was he right or wrong? Well, I've seen this ass hat a bunch of times now. Um, in August this year, we're going to have a bank holiday in September, put all your money in gold. 
and it was posted on the forum. And and I, I, I looked at it and I said, this looks familiar. So I looked back and it turned out that he also had inside sources in 2008 that told him the same thing. So this guy made the same prediction in August of 08 and August of 09 that there's going to be a bank holiday declared in September. Inside sources inside the Treasury, inside the banking departments, etc. They told him this. The embassies were going to refuse U.S. currency around the world. They were stockpiling local currencies, blah, blah, blah. It's all happening in September, two years in a row. And if you keep digging through it, you will find that this asset has made prediction after prediction after prediction. Always with knowledge from an inside source, always with a deadline, always has the deadline come and gone, and never has it occurred. And this is the problem with the conspiracy theorists as a whole. Now again, I think most conspiracy theories have an air of truth, and you have an extreme conspiracy version, and you have a mainstream version, and the truth lies somewhere in the middle, and, and the people that want to, to, uh, to confuse you use the conspiracy theory theorists against themselves. They, they, the 9-11 truthers that are convinced they know everything that happened, they've connected all the dots, and they're sure about it, are the biggest damaging factor to ever finding out the full truth about what we knew, when we knew it, and what we did in response to it. The 9-11 truthers cause... The, 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 the fallacies about 9-11 to remain intact because anybody that, that, that starts to, you know, uses common sense and examines it, looks at all their explanations, eventually says, yeah, maybe these guys are onto something. You dig deep enough, you stay open-minded, you go, no, this is, this is, there's a lot of holes in this shit, too. And then they can't find the middle, so they go back to the common explanation because it's more comfortable. So I think that in any of these things, we have to start using some rationalization and look for some middle ground. Now, what I'm telling you is, I don't care who makes the statement, look at the statements they've made before, and judge, have they been accurate in the past? In this case, we have the same predictions being made over and over again. We have the same failure to, to fruition over and over again, and we always have the infamous inside sources. This leaves me with only two possible conclusions about Bob Chapman. All right, Bob Chapman is either a liar or nuts. Okay, so it's three conclusions. He either is full of shit, knows he's full of shit, or full, full of shit and believes his own bullshit, and there is no inside source anywhere, and he's making this crap up, or he does have inside sources, he's foolish or delusional enough to believe them, even though they let him down over and over again. So you make your choice there, but all I'm saying, in all of these things, whether conspiracy theory, black helicopter, forward-looking predictions, inside source, knowledge of the government, I'm not saying that all of those people are wrong. I'm not saying that they're wrong in every instance. I'm saying you have to use common sense and judgment, and you have to look at what they've said in the past when judging what they're saying about the future. And if you don't do that, you're setting yourself up for failure. We deal with some scary topics on this show. We look at the reality that our United States economy is basically hanging by a thread, that there's a lot of truth to what Bob Chapman says about the dollar and its devaluation, but in his own numbers in this thing, he talked about an $800 billion requirement to fix the problem. Now, our government's already thrown $7 trillion in the, into the pot. What's well, another $800 billion? Now, that will devalue the dollar, of course, but it's not the end of the world scenario that the guy's predicting. He's just wrong. And he's either, again, wrong because he's delusional, or he's wrong because he's a liar that wants to sell silver and gold. To some front man for some organization. I haven't dug that deep. I don't really care. All I need to do is look at past predictions, the results of those predictions, and it, when I see them line up with future predictions, I go, the guy's no credibility. So there you go. Sorry I went off on 9-11 a little bit. Um, don't write me and tell me how wrong I am. You're wasting your breath. And don't write me and tell me how I should just believe the official explanation. You're also wasting your breath. Like most things, I believe the truth is somewhere in the middle. I hope one day we get it all. And I don't think it's anywhere near as nefarious as the truthers. And I don't think it's anywhere near as clean as uh, the official explanation. And neither one of those sides, when you really put them to the test, completely pass it. All right, so... Let's go to another question. Let's get off of this. Um, this comes from Wayne. Wayne wants to know if the government's ever going to come after 401k money, right? Um, the tax deferred money. 
And uh, will they ever try to like look back at it, figure a way to get at that money? Because they made the deal with you. You can put your money in there and defer the taxes. But uh, now they're looking at it and they have all these financial problems and they see a solution in that wealth that's sitting there. Um, yes and no. Let's look at two sides of this. The first side of this is the conventional IRA uh, and the conventional 401k, the, the original tax-deferred uh, 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 vehicles. The way these work is you don't pay any taxes on the money you put it in there. The money grows tax-free, but when you withdraw the money, you have to pay taxes on it. The government's not going to jack with that at all. They don't have to jack with it. They don't care about it. It doesn't matter. Because sooner or later, you're going to pay. And you're going to pay dearly. This is why I don't like conventional IRAs. I don't like conventional 401ks. That's why I always recommend a Roth, because people don't understand how much tax you pay. See, when you make money on a stock, you pay capital gains, which is significantly less than paying income tax. Because income tax is also subject to Social Security taxation. And when you're not employed anymore and you're pulling money out, you get to pay your own. Which means you pay double on Social Security. Yeah, see, here's the thing that nobody tells you. When you withdraw that money from that conventional 401k in the future, it's all taxed as earned income. Not just the money you put in that you're taking back out, but all the money you've made. All the interest accrued, all the dividends, all the appreciation in the stock. Every penny that's sent to you in a check is taxed in the same way that your income is taxed today when your employer pays you. Except you don't have an employer to take care of his part of it. So the government sees all that conventional money as is, is a, uh, a giant CD for them. Sooner or later, they're going to collect on it. So that's safe. The other side of this is the Roth uh, side of it. This is where um, I make $10,000 this year that I want to defer, and I put it into $5,000 into a Roth IRA for me and $5,000 to a Roth IRA for my wife. And... Um, we pay taxes on it this year. That money has already been taxed, all 10000 of it in both accounts. But it sits there for 20 years, and 20 years later, it's worth $50,000, right? We've had a five-time return on our investments worth fifty grand. This is why this is a good way to put your money in there. I've made forty on my TED. And you know how much tax I pay? Nothing. Zero. Zilch. I can take all $50,000 out once I hit my age of retirement, and um, I don't have to pay taxes on a penny of it. And as more and more people move into the Roth side of things, we have to ask, will they go after that money? Will they decide that, oh, you're too rich? We have to redistribute some wealth here. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It would take a major change to the tax code. I think what would be more likely is that at some point maybe they would decide that they're not going to allow this anymore and they would have to grandfather the existing accounts. But I can tell you how to do it in a very nefarious way that everybody would welcome open-armed at first. No one would understand and no one would get. What if we did what so many people have talked about with federal taxes? What if we said no more federal income tax at all? We went to a federal sales tax. Oh, that'd be great, right? Yeah, it'd be great unless you had, I don't know, a half a million dollars sitting in a Roth IRA. Um, that you could have now made all that money without ever paying any income tax on it. And now when you withdraw it, you're going to pay it when you spend it. So if I wanted to do this as our government, I would push the nation into a federal sales tax, and I would capture all of that money. See, I've already captured the, the money bef- the, when it went in. Because I taxed it when it went in. i got to figure out how to tax it on its way out. And here's the beautiful part. Um, I may then absolve the federal income tax for the people with the conventional accounts, but I still got them. I still got them on uh, Social Security because it's earned income. And I still have them when they spend the money. So I get it all that way. I'm not saying that would necessarily be bad long-term for the country, but that would be the easiest way to mechanically pull it off. It's probably too deep for this topic, but uh, I thought we would go in there and and think about things a little bit differently today. Um, Now, here's another question. Totally left field for me here. TR, 
uh, asked me uh, in a very long diatribe email. I summed it up as quickly as I could. Basically, we stole land from the Native Americans when we, we colonized America. And uh, he understands the wealth and value of buying land. But isn't buying land today a lot like, well, let's say if the, if the Nazis went in and took away um, gold from the Jewish people and then we go buy that gold and make a profit at it, when it really belonged to somebody else, it should be returned to them. So is it right to buy an old land in the United States today? Um, what? I mean, I guess I follow your logic, but let me let me take your logic back a step. If we decided we would never buy any land anywhere that had ever been taken by one group of people from another group of people, we'd have absolutely no land to buy whatsoever. Throughout history... Wars have been fought over territories. Before we came to the North American continent, the tribes that lived here themselves fought for land and took it from each other and stole it from each other. Uh, the, the continent of Europe has changed borders more times than, than it is humanly possible to think about uh, in a brief period of time. Uh, people have stolen land, annexed land. Uh, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's happened continuously. And what we have to do is we have to deal with the situation that we have today. If you don't buy the piece of land, somebody else is going to buy it. No one's going to give it back to the agents. Now, if you really feel that way, why don't you go buy a bunch of land? Why don't you go work your ass off, buy a bunch of land, and give it to tribes? I wouldn't fault you for it. I would consider it noble. But it's not like buying Nazi gold that was stolen from Jews. Holy God. The other thing you have to understand is how long ago this crap happened. And that most of the people living in this country today didn't even have family here. My family came from the Ukraine. The late 1800s. I, I had nothing to do with that. This is the way things are now. We have to deal with this. Do I think that we did a lot of things wrong to the native population? Yeah, I absolutely do. Do I think that we were arrogant in the way that we did it? Do I think that we, we, we hunted the buffalo to near extinction just to starve them out? Yeah. Do I think that when I say that's not one of our finest hours, it's an understatement? Yeah. But this is 2000. And nine, almost 2010. We have to live with the world that we have today. And hopefully those wounds are largely healed. I know there's some native peoples that still carry scars from that. But I would say at this point, everybody in this country has an equal opportunity. And that the reservation system, while basically I think it was disgraceful when it was initially set up, and that these people were given the worst possible pieces of land and forced onto it like an island, today has been turned around by very entrepreneuring people and made to be quite profitable for the tribes people. So uh, I don't think it heals all wounds. I wish it would have not happened the way that it did. I think we could have learned a lot from the native peoples. I think a lot of their wisdom has been lost. I know that some of it's being preserved. I hope that we, we dig deep and we learn more. I hope we fix our country uh, ecologically in many ways that I believe that, that the native people that are still around can help us do. But I don't think I'm buying Nazi gold when I buy a piece of land in the middle of the Washita Mountains. Um, I think that's nonsensical. Uh, gassed. All right, next person, Suzanne. Suzanne says, what do you think of using paint cans for food storage? And Suzanne is a professional painter and comes across cans all the time and just thought, you know, you can put food in there for years. It protects it from rodents. It, it, it's sealed up. You know, it's, it's a good, solid container, and they're affordable. I think it's a good idea. A couple issues I have. Um, I've looked at doing this myself. Most of the cans that are available from, like, Lowe's and Home Depot have an epoxy that's inside of them to help the paint, you know, not stick to the sides and the bottom. That epoxy's not food grade. So I would say you either need to be, A, using bare paint cans that do not have epoxy on the inside of them, and in that case using a food grade plastic liner, and I don't see any problem with that whatsoever. I think it makes a lot of sense, and I've done it. Or you can buy food-grade paint cans that are lined with this gold food-grade plating. And then you can just put stuff straight in there. The problem with the food-grade cans is you might as well be buying gamma seal lid plastic buckets. or uh, they're, they're, they're expensive enough that the savings is really gone. Um, the, 
the uncoated paint cans with a plastic uh, bag, I think, are great. They're a great way to save some money. I, I would be careful about putting all your food into that type of situation, but I think they're great. I think it's a great tip. Uh, I think I've actually talked about doing it on the show before. Um, I would not store food in the epoxy coated cans. I'm not saying that I know for a fact that there's toxins there. I'm just saying that the people I, I sent an email to one of the manufacturers of the cans and uh, they certainly said not to use the epoxy line cans for food storage. They basically said not to use the unlined cans either. They said use our food storage cans to store food. I'm sure that's their legal department covering their ass. Uh, but the tone of the email told me we really don't think you should should use this epoxy shed to put food into it. So if they don't think I should do it, I don't think I should do it either. So there you go. Simple, easy one. Uh, we've got a couple more questions to see if we can knock them out here. Okay, Eric, who lives in the Northeast, uh, has a situation quite similar to mine. He's got some land um, that is a few hours away from his primary residence, which is in a suburban situation, much like I have in Arlington here. And then my bug allocation argument. So it sounds like he's a little closer to his remote land. Uh, and he sounds like he has a, bit, a little bit bigger of a piece of land. He said many acres of wooded land. Um, he wants to know what, what could he plant uh, on that wooded land uh, that doesn't require a lot of attention that would provide a food source. I'm going to tell you, and he did ask about veggies, and you know, there's some that would grow in the shade and things like that. And if you want to grow some stuff in the shade, you know, you'd probably want to try to colonize the place with a lot of lettuce seed, uh, even commercial lettuce seed, uh, allow that to go wild. Uh, you could probably get a pretty good, especially kind of on an edge area that gets some mottled sun. Uh, you could probably get that going, and it would probably work pretty well. Definitely some wild uh, plants like miner's lettuce, uh, and at your edges, maybe um, lamb's quarters and things like that uh, would work well for you. But standard vegetable gardening, forget about it in this situation. Unless you're going to clear an area, make a place where the sun's going to hit it, put in some uh, good beds, and put in an uh, irrigation system that runs on a timer. With, without that, vegetables are not the way to go here. What you want to be doing here is um, bushes, vines, and trees that produce edible food. And coming up with some type of irrigation, there are these huge bladders that will like slowly irrigate the ground for almost a month uh, that you could use to get your trees established. Once they're established for a year, they probably don't need that anymore. Or if you have water on the property, a well or access to, to city water, what have you, put in an automated irrigation system for your trees. Uh, but I would focus on things, especially up where you are, and I won't say specifically where you are, but up in that northeast corridor, uh, like grapes uh, do very well up there. They're, they're find the varieties of grapes that grow well. Um, putting in some grapes and, and putting in some uh, basic trellising or using some existing structures. Uh, you need some sunlight for that, but uh, that's okay. Maybe thinning out some pockets uh, of your woods uh, to grow some trees into the canopy system. Uh, like apples will do very well in your area. Uh, pears will do fairly well in the, in the uh, northeast. Uh, there are some uh, varieties of persimmons that do really well up there. A lot of your bush crops, um, uh, gummies, uh, uh, aronia, uh, sea berry, uh, service berry, saskatoons, uh, gooseberry, currants, th- those are all going to do great. And, and there's a million different things. It's a great place if you clear out some uh, space to give it some sunlight to grow a nice long hedge of about 10 uh, various different varieties of hazelnuts. Uh, they'll, they'll do great there, and you need at least two varieties for pollinization with that, and they'll spread like wildfire over time. Again, you do need to think about irrigation here, but I, w- I would just I just get rid of the, the concept of veggies. And the beautiful thing is, if you're a hunter, all of these things will improve wildlife. And yeah, the wildlife's going to take a lot of it while you're not around, uh, but that's going to put wildlife on your property, and that's free livestock that you don't have to take care of. And, you know, a bullet and a deer, and you've got quite a bit of protein, right? So I think that there's a huge kind of symbiotic relationship between your wildlife and your food supply there.
So that's the route that I would take in that situation. It's pretty much what I've done in Arkansas. I've got some permanent crops going on up there. I don't mess with any vegetable gardening. Sometimes I'm 60 days between a visit there. Sometimes even a little bit longer if things get really hectic and busy and I take a vacation somewhere other part of the world. So a vegetable garden is pointless. Uh, but getting a lot of things to grow, you also might want to start planting a lot of medicinal plants uh, that reseed themselves or that are perennials. Uh, there's a lot of wildflowers that are good medicinal plants. So if you have kind of a, an area with all these woods that's more like a meadow, have that be colonized by uh, as much variety of useful plants and wild plants as you can, wild edibles and wild medicinals, and even things that we think of as being domesticated, like mint, uh, will go wild with no problem. So what you might consider doing is get a huge collection of seed that you would like to colonize an area with, and this is for everybody, it's more universal, uh, an open area, a meadow or a field. Mix those seeds uh, at a ratio of about one part seed to one, to two parts uh, soil, good potting soil, to two parts powdered clay, powdered sifted clay. Mix those with enough water to where you can make little balls out of them and let them harden. And scatter those balls like crazy. What will happen is they'll stay hard and it, they'll wait for a rain. And the rain will melt the clay. And then you have a nice little nutrient packet right there, and some level of the seeds will take off. And you, you don't have to make them up separately or anything. Mix the seed all together, and what you'll end up with is a tremendous variety of the way nature would do it. And uh, then you have known quantities. You know what to look for. You know it establishes itself, and you start to create more usable space. But I would take those two approaches. Wouldn't bother with uh, conventional vegetables at all. Unless you can get there at least once a week. If you're not going to be there once a week and you're not going to set up automated irrigation, you're pushing a string, as we say. So there's the best answer I can give you on that. Um, next question comes from Jim. And he's asking about coinflation and spot pricing, and he got a, a pretty good deal, he feels like, on eBay. And, Jim, I looked at your deal on eBay, and you got a great deal. But what he really wants to know is, is the coinflation price for silver the spot price that I often refer to? Yes and no. Before I answer that, for people that aren't familiar with coinflation, I need to tell you what coinflation is. It's a cool little website a guy put together, and one of the features on it is he has melt calculators. So if you had a 100 silver quarters and you melted them down to the raw value of the metal, what are they worth? And they'll break it up between not just silver but the other metals that are contained in any coin. For instance, if you put in um, pennies, it'll tell you the value of the copper and the zinc. All right? And he wants to know, is that price the spot price? Yes and no. Uh, and yes in the way that you were asking me, but no in the way that somebody might take it if I don't explain it. When you stick in your price or your number of quarters and you, you run the melt calculator on coinflation, it'll tell you that the silver is worth X dollars based on a price of, and it'll give you a price, $18.13 an ounce or whatever. That is the spot price. They pull that. I think it's a daily update in the guy's database off of Monex or one of the places where silver spot prices. So, yes, that is the spot price. The price in the melt value of the coins, when it says, oh, these coins are worth $130, is not the spot price for pre-64 quarters. That price will actually be higher. Because even in coins that are damaged somewhat or used or heavily circulated, there is some numismatic value in those coins. So if you go to Monex and you look, you will see that there is a spot price for pre-64 silver coins, which is usually higher than the solid melt value of the coin. So your deal is even better if you look at it that way. Now, there's not a lot of people that you can go sell those coins to at the coin spot price. That is for major trading on an exchange. But it gives you an idea that your deal was better than you thought it was because he bought it for uh, the coins for, I think, about... 
120 bucks and the melt value was like 135 and he saved the shipping because the guy was local and he got a second roll like that. I would have definitely made that buy. I think it was a good solid buy, good deal. But if you want to use coinflation, you have to understand where the numbers are coming from. The value of the melted metals comes from the spot price for a pure ounce of that metal sold as a commodity. The spot value of coins is different based on the denomination, their year, their condition, and things like that. So the the melt value is the absolute minimal value of the coins as a metal commodity, which makes it a great tool. And as long as you're buying at that price or under, you're doing pretty damn good. So so use Coinflation. It's a great site. Remember to go by the survivalpodcast.com. Don't just download the shows from iTunes. One of the things that will be there today is a link to um, Coinflation. So you can check this out and use this tool if you've never used it before. Always go by the site. I always try to give you guys value add in the entries on the site for each day. Last question. This is an interesting one. That's why I decided to do it today and make it my final question of the day. Debbie. Debbie says, house is empty. Empty nest. Kids are gone. Husband travels. She's a truck driver. Wants her to have a gun. Uh, she shot a few guns in her life. and She's not the most comfortable in the world with them. Uh, but he feels like now that the, this youngest son left and he's not there to defend his mother anymore, uh, he's gone overnight, you know, over the road stuff, two days at a time sometimes. She should not be completely undefended. He wants to get her her own gun, have her go to the range, learn how to use it, be trained in it. Good for you, sir. That's the way to do it. You don't just say, here's one out of the cabinet. But they're having a debate over the kind of gun. Debbie wants a very small gun, something that's easy to carry, something that's easy to hold, something that's easy to use. And her husband is telling her that you are not, apparently they don't live in a place where concealed carry is even an option, so you're not going to be carrying the gun on you when you go to the market or what have you. Um, That you'll shoot a bigger frame gun better because it weighs more and it will reduce its recoil. And since you're only going to be using it in the home, any advantages that a small frame weapon would have are diminished, and you're left only with a disadvantage of it's harder to shoot. Which way should we go? Okay. I'm going to say maybe your husband's right and maybe neither, and maybe you're right. We'll look at it from a few different ways, and you guys make the decision for yourself. First and foremost, when your husband says that any advantage of a small gun is gone if you're not going to carry it on your person outside of the home, he is absolutely correct. Um, if you can shoot it well, you're better off with a full-size 45 with some 230 grain hollow points in it. And if you put that into an assailant's chest, he's done. Goodbye. Go out. The end. And uh, as much respect as I have for people like James Jager and their opinion of a 9mm, um, if I have two choices, I'm going to take that big hole of the 45. And I know it's a more lethal weapon. Um, so a full-frame handgun, unless you're a very, very small person, it's probably a mental thing that you think it's going to be easier to shoot. Your husband's probably right. The other side of this, though, if you're going to only use this weapon at home, and if you're not going to go get a holster and you're not going to carry it on your body in the home, and I know you can't carry it outside the home, I recommend if you're going to be armed in your home, carry on your person in your home and carry basically concealed. If you're not going to do that at all, and you're going to keep the gun somewhere, and if something happens, you're going to have to go get the gun and retrieve it, you're both wrong. You're both completely, totally wrong. The reason handguns exist are so you can carry a gun on your person. They are the worst choice for a defensive situation that there is. Um... I'm not as big as James Jagger is on it, where he says people shot with a handgun go out, leave me alone, and run away, and people shot with rifles die. There's been plenty of people killed with handguns. And at home defense ranges, and you're talking five to seven yards maximum, two rounds in the chest from most handguns, and if that guy doesn't die on the spot, he's going to die somewhere. Um, and, yeah, a lot of people survive handgun wounds, and I know, and we can have that debate. But the reality is when you shoot a guy at five to seven yards with number four buck out of a 20-gauge or a 20-gauge shotgun slug, they do die. 
Mr. Yeager is absolutely correct about that. They go down in a heap. Uh, shotguns and rifles or carbines end fights quickly. And that's what you want in a home defense situation. Now, I know if you're intimidated by a large frame handgun, you may be even more intimidated by a 20-gauge shotgun. But a 20-gauge shotgun is very easy to shoot. I taught my son to shoot a Remington 870 youth model when he was 9 years old. And he was a small frame shot. I guarantee you he was a smaller frame than you. Guaranteed, and I guarantee you were stronger now than he was then. So you can learn to shoot it well. And if you're going to have to retrieve it in your situation, I'd recommend a short stocked, short barreled, 20 gauge loaded with buck or slugs. Because God forbid you ever have to use it, it's going to do the job. For some people in your situation, I might recommend a rifle. Everything I got out of this one, I, my gut goes with shotgun, that's what I'm going to recommend. Now, if you are married to having a handgun, I don't care what anybody says, there's nothing wrong with a good revolver. A good small frame revolver in 357 Magnum, the reason I recommend that is going to be the final part of my advice, and that's about practice. Uh, you can shoot it with 38s. There's no need for you to ever fire it with a 357 Magnum round in it, ever. If you ever have to use it and you're in a stressful situation and you're going on instinct and you're defending yourself, you'll never notice the muzzle flash, you'll never notice the recoil. I can tell you that, you know, I had a 7mm Remington Magnum rifle. Did I hated shooting at the range, it beat the hell out of me, the recoil was brutal on it, the way the stock was designed, it was a terribly designed rifle, and the recoil sucked, I hated shooting this thing at the range on the bench, every deer, every elk, everything I've ever shot with it, I never felt an ounce of recoil, you don't notice it in that situation, you're certainly not going to notice it blowing away a bad guy in your front door, so you can become completely comfortable and familiar with how to shoot a 38 when it's stored for use in the home, it can be loaded up with 357s. If you ever have to pull the trigger, you'll never notice the difference, I promise you. On that note, now you have the option of carrying that weapon on your person. You get the smaller frame that you're comfortable with. You get a weapon that you can shoot uh, and become very proficient with and become very familiar with. And uh, I think you have a better situation overall. So that might be the way I would You guys have, again, have to make this decision for yourself. Anybody that tells you, well, you should do this, and if you don't, you're wrong, right? It's this gun, and if it's not, no. Because it's your home, it's your money, it's your situation. You can judge it better than anybody else ever possibly could. So you have to make the decision for yourself. That being said, here's the final piece on this. Before you buy anything... My recommendation is that you go to a gun range that allows you to rent guns. You absolutely need to go to a place that allows you to rent them and pay for range time and fire them and fire anything that you're thinking about buying before you buy it. No matter what you say, no matter what you think, no matter what your husband thinks, I want you to know what you're buying, what it does, how it operates, what it's like to fire it. Are you going to be comfortable uh, shooting it and practicing with it? And if you're not, it's the wrong weapon for you. Because I would rather have you have a 32 automatic that you're comfortable shooting than having a gun that so intimidates you that you don't become familiar with it. Now, I don't want you using a 32 automatic for home defense. I think it's a terrible idea. But if it's that, or being intimidated by a weapon, and when you need it, not being comfortable implementing it, I'll take the other one, even though it's not an ideal situation. So I want you to go out and practice, or not even practice, pre-shoot some weapons at a range, including a 20-gauge shotgun. You can find a range that will let you do that. Uh, you can... Guarantee you'll find ranges that will rent you weapons that even if they're not the exact model that you're looking for, they'll be very similar. So maybe they don't have the particular 9mm semi-auto pistol that you're considering buying, but they'll have one about the same size and the same dimensions. Fire that. They're gonna, they're gonna, maybe not be exactly the same, but their, 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 their feel and what it's like firing them is gonna be very, very similar to each other. So that's the, the full sale advice. Go out there and shoot some of these weapons before you make a purchasing decision. Because in, in the end, what I'm going to tell you is you're not obviously an experienced uh, person with a weapon. So in the first 60 days that you own this weapon, I want you at the range uh, shooting it and becoming familiar with it at least once every other week, if not once a week. And I think once a week would be better. And it doesn't have to be a long trip to the range. It could be 20 minutes, go in and fire a few rounds, fire off a box of shells, get comfortable with it. Uh, but I want you to be comfortable with your weapon. 
it would be great if you took some advanced tactical training or something like that. That would be a good thing. I would highly recommend it. I think it will empower you a lot more. But as a bare minimum, I want you to be able to comfortably pick the weapon up, load it yourself, point it, use the safety features, use all the mechanical actions of the weapon, fire it accurately, know what to expect from it. I want you familiar with your weapon. If you're not familiar with your weapon, you're better off dialing 911. Because odds are the weapon will be taken away from you, and you won't use it when you need to. And it will become a liability instead of an asset. You've got to be familiar with a weapon if you're going to have it and use it to defend yourself. Anything short of that is just a mistake. And that's where I will put an absolute in this. Owning a weapon that you're not familiar with and not comfortable with always is a mistake. So you're going to have to become familiar with it. So that's kind of a deep question. I know I went a little bit long with it here at the end, but that's a full answer. And it's a harder answer than, oh, just get a shotgun. Or it's a harder answer than, it's a Glock 19, and if you don't agree, you're wrong. It's a much harder answer. But it's an answer that's more applicable to more people. Because different people are in different situations. And I think that anybody can learn to use any weapon. But are they willing to is the bigger question. So while I would say if you're not going to carry the gun on your person, the ideal weapon in this situation is a good 20-gauge pump or semi-auto shotgun. If the person that I'm talking to isn't willing to learn to use a shotgun, if they're intimidated by that, if they've chosen for themselves to limit themselves there, we've got to look at another option. If the person says to me, but yeah, if I become comfortable, I'm willing to carry on my person, then we're looking at handguns that would be very similar to the handguns that we would carry if we lived in a state that believed in freedom and allowed us to do concealed carry. Because that way, when you're in your kitchen cooking and somebody breaks into your house, you don't have to go, excuse me, let me run to the master bedroom and get my gun. So now that would steer me back to a handgun. Or it would steer me to saying, why don't we become proficient with both? So that when we're sleeping at night, the shotgun is very close at hand. But when we're working in the backyard in the garden on our own property where the government doesn't get to tell us what we can do, maybe we have a three fifty seven Magnum or a 9mm in our waistband. But it's up to the individual what they're comfortable with, what they're willing to do, what risks they're willing to take, what risks they're willing to not take, how much they're willing to invest in their own education. That's very important with firearms recommendations. It's why I take more time, and it's why I don't give absolute answers. Hopefully it helps people figure out their own individual situation, because that's really what it's all about here at the Survival Podcast, is helping you in all of these things not decide what is the right or wrong answer for everybody in some kind of generic prescription, but what is the right answer for me under my current circumstances with the situation that I have to deal with, with the assets that I have available to me, with the liabilities hanging over my head, because the answer for a person in Maryland for something may be very different than the answers for a person in Nevada. Especially if the person in Maryland is an 82-year-old woman, and the guy in Nevada is a 45-year-old man that owns a ranch. Obviously, they're going to have different answers, not just to gun questions, but to food storage, to emergency planning, emergency preparedness. The guy in Miami is more concerned about a hurricane, obviously, than the guy in South Dakota. So I'll always try to dissect these, and sometimes it'll go a little bit long, but it will always allow you and empower you to make your own plans, to make your own decisions based on your own life. If I don't do that, I'm wasting all of our time. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.